Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Continue our journey through the letter of Philippians as we come to this wonderful passage. It was my intention to preach uh, this whole passage. I'm not going to get through the whole thing this week, so we'll pick it up again uh, next week. Let's turn our eyes and the eyes of our hearts to God's Word as we read it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is given to us for our good. As God's people, uh, he gives it to us by inspiration of his spirit, without error, perfect to accomplish his purposes. Let us hear from God's word, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, Faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we were getting settled into our new home in South Holland a few years ago, uh, you, you settle in. There's always some things that you want to uh, set up. It can be a long process. One of the things that uh, we decided to get as I was going through Home Depot and thinking about certain things you can have in your house uh, were these poisonous gas detectors, um, carbon monoxide, and then other uh, poisonous gases that you might not be able to detect by seeing it or by smelling it. Kind of an unsettling thing, isn't it? That there are uh, poisons that can get into the air that you would not be able to detect, that could get in your body and prove to be, in their worst cases, fatal. Kind of an unsettling feeling. And you have kind of that unsettling feeling every time you look at one of those alarms if you have them in your house. We have a spiritual poison that we need to be aware of, and it's undetectable because it's how we are wired, as I mentioned earlier this morning. We're wired a certain way, wired to have confidence in the flesh, wired to think about our standing before God in terms of our own achievements, to think about the fact that we can have merit 
before God. This is the poison that we need to be aware of, the spiritual poison. And Paul confronts that poison that was within himself and within us. He condemns that poison by bringing grace front and center. We talk about grace a lot, but talking about grace can never get old. And talking about salvation by grace can never get old when we think about it rightly. So in this passage, we are summoned to throw away any confidence in our own legalistic law-keeping and find our hope in Christ alone. We're also called to pledge fierce allegiance to the gospel of grace and to understand the kind of dangers we are confronted with through false teaching from without and through our spiritual poison from within. I think if you look around at the world around us, whether we're talking about kind of the the late resurgence in New Age spirituality, or just in general, the kind of obsession that we have in our culture, which was very similar to the culture in Philippi, the rat race of status, the kinds of things that we want uh, to do to advance our own name. We live in, a, in an age where you could go back probably 30, 40 years, and the term self-branding wouldn't make any sense. But today... We have that in our culture. We know what that means because of the proliferation of information and communication. Celebrities, people of status, they need to have kind of their own brand, whether it be athletes or famous musicians or actors. Many of them now have their own logo, personal branding, personal name. You see that kind of poison that is within us. New Age spirituality, it's the same thing. It is uh, trying to prove your own worth as you take your own individual journey. The gospel of grace is completely different than that. And it's living according to a different principle altogether. Three ideas. First is the futility of the flesh. The futility of the flesh. Second is our Resume, our resume that uh, ultimately adds up to rubbish, resume of rubbish, and then finally rags to righteousness by grace. Rags to righteousness by grace. We see that Paul begins under the inspiration of the Spirit in this passage by saying, uh, finally rejoice in the Lord. It's kind of moving into the, the, the last movement of this letter. Going to summarize everything package it nicely and neatly, leave us with the message that uh, God would intend for us. So he retraces that, that thread, that theme that's been throughout this letter of joy. Rejoice. He challenges us, even as he has just finished, talking to us about how or, or what kind of circumstance he finds himself in currently as he's writing this. He's facing a situation that may bring his death. He says, yet again, rejoice. But how do you rejoice? You rejoice in the Lord. And this passage unfolds one principal reason, one glorious reason, why we can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all circumstances. He gives us great reason uh, for rooting our joy and being united to Christ. 
The second part of verse 1 is a little bit difficult to understand. As you read it, you, you tend to associate when he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, we tend to associate it with that call to rejoice with what has come before. But what is actually going on there is he's setting them up for what he is going to say in verses 2 and following. He's going to confront false teaching and false teachers. He says, it's no trouble for me to warn you once again about these false teachers. Apparently, there was some kind of presence of this heretical teaching that Paul confronts in this passage. Some presence of them in uh, the city of Philippi. The error that Paul is dealing with is that of the Judaizers, the Judaizing party. This was a group present in the New Testament times and afterwards that taught that salvation is found through faith in Christ... So far, so good, but then you need to submit, and particularly to call Gentiles to submit to certain aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial law, chiefly that of circumcision and other various parts of the law. So in order to be saved from sin, the message of this Judaizing party, whom Paul is confronting here in this passage, their message, in order to be saved from sin, you need faith in Christ and you need submission to certain aspects of the ceremonial law, which they would uh, characterize as good works. We get a sense of what Paul thinks of this error right from the start, don't we? He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, this was a, uh, a culture in which dogs were not highly domesticated creatures. Think about it the way that if you've ever been... Uh, to more to less developed parts of the world and kind of the stray dogs that you see out in the street, mangy scavengers, uh, those kinds of things. And what's so interesting about what Paul is doing here is that dogs would have been a term that Pharisees, Judaizers would have used to talk about Gentiles, right? If uh, something was perhaps a, a plate of food that was not appealing at all, uh, a Pharisee or someone cut from that cloth may have said something like, this is a plate of food that's fit for Gentiles and for dogs. So Paul is turning the tables on, this, on these Judaizers a bit by saying that uh, they think that they are really the, the, the center of God's mission and purpose in the world. They are truly God's people. Paul is putting them outside of the camp here in a very specific way that would have been highly offensive to them. He calls them workers of evil, when of course they would have viewed their own work going into Gentile cities and getting people to submit to circumcision. They would have seen that as good work, the best work, making people familiar with they're gone. Workers of evil. Mutilators of the flesh. He, he, he continues piling up these phrases that seemingly get more and more offensive in the ears of the Judaizers. That act of circumcision that the Judaizing party would have seen as purifying. That's a, a purifying thing to bring more people into that observation of the Old Testament ceremonial law. Paul says, no, it's mutilation. That's what their practice of circumcision was. And he doesn't back off in verse, in verse 3, does he? Paul says, we, and by which he means those who have faith in Christ, uh, and in Christ alone, 
and cling to the gospel of grace, we are the true circumcision. There's a similar thing that happens in Galatians chapter 6. And the book of Galatians is dealing with this same error, this Judaizing heresy. And Paul says there in Galatians 6, May peace be upon the Israel of God, by which he means the Israel of God are those who believe in the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul says here that the people of God, those who are the true circumcision, are those who do three particular things. Who worship by the Spirit of God. Who worship by the Spirit of God. By which Paul is bringing forth the reality that faith in the gospel and life in Christ is a Spirit-created reality. In Martin Luther's small catechism, one of the greatest uh, answers there that we find, I think it's in the 15th paragraph or 15th, 15th section, says this, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called, enlightened, sanctified, and kept me. There's a spiritual reality that can only be created by the Holy Spirit. The Judaizing error, the Judaizing heresy, fell into the trap that thinking spiritual life is something that can be created by your own submission to these external things. Paul says it's something created by the Spirit. Those who are the true circumcision, those who believe in the gospel of grace, are those who glory in Christ Jesus. Does our faith, or does what we believe in, glorify Jesus Christ and Him alone? Foundationally, as biblical Christians, we need to make sure that the message in which we're believing glorifies Christ and Him alone, offers no chance for boasting in ourselves. It's also those who put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Paul's going to explain a little bit more of what that means. This is how we need to think about the gospel of grace. Three things. It is a life created by the Spirit through faith. It is a glorification of the work of Jesus Christ alone. And it is a rejection of human achievement in salvation. It utterly rejects it. It utterly rejects the notion that salvation can be in any way achieved through human achievement. That is the gospel. We are sinners, hopelessly sinful, and can do nothing to get out of our sinfulness or to achieve the righteousness of God or to achieve righteousness before God. But in Christ, God makes a way where there was no way. So let us think about this heresy, this Judaizing heresy that Paul confronts. The message is believe in Jesus and follow these rules. Believe in Jesus and follow these rules. Who does the saving? In that message, in that gospel, whether it's true or false, who does the saving? At the very least, one would have to say that it's sort of half and half. And you can think about it this way, that faith in Christ, in such a message, faith in Christ makes someone savable brings them into the sphere of the possibility of salvation, but then uh, their submission to these external rights, or whatever rules you would want to write up, 
Submission to those things is what actually saves someone. So, would there be grounds for boasting, for human boasting in such a message? Yes, of course. One could look at their own obedience and say, look at what I have accomplished. I have done at least a part of it, maybe half, maybe more. I've done a part of the saving for myself. Furthermore, could one say in such such a message that all that is required for salvation is found in Christ alone? No, indeed, you could not. There is something else that is needed. So we've come here to the very heart of the gospel. And these are utterly serious issues that Paul needs to deal with. He basically says this, Biblical Christianity is that salvation is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in his work. All those who believe and receive Jesus' work for them are saved completely and granted salvation in Christ. Article 22 of the Belgian Confession does just a beautiful job of laying this matter out clearly and plainly. We've used it from time to time as our affirmation of faith. It says this, It must necessarily follow that either all that is required for salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in Him, then those who have Christ by faith have His salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God, for it would then follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. It seems incredibly similar to what we have in the New Testament times, the Judaizing heresy, doesn't it? That's because at the time of the early Reformation, there was an error that had Uh, found large acceptance in the church and was being preached in the church, dangerously so, that in order to be saved, you need two things. You need God's grace, and then you need cooperation with grace. Think about that word, cooperation. We're operating, we are doing something, cooperating with God's grace. You need God's grace, and then cooperation with grace. Good works, we're achieving merit before God the late medieval church. This was why the church needed reformation to be brought back to the apostolic message of salvation and grace by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because you cannot get the gospel wrong and be right with God. You cannot get the gospel wrong and be right with God. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. That's why the church needs to fiercely guard the message of salvation in Christ, for it glorifies Christ's work alone, and by it we put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. This is what it means to be a biblical Christian. Think about it this way. I'm stealing this illustration uh, from, uh, from a friend of mine, Jonathan Womack. Think about it this way. You think about going to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the the, the banquet feast that God will put on on the last day for His people, a celebration of the salvation that He has accomplished and given to us. And think about going to that banquet, which will be the, the most glorious day up to that point of our existence. We will see and we will know that salvation and satisfaction is found in our God and in Christ alone. And imagine after feasting 
on all of those good things that the Lord will give to us. And imagine going up to Jesus Christ and pulling out of your pocket a, a, a wad of crumpled up old Monopoly money and handing it to, to Jesus as if to say, here, let me at least cover some of the cost for my being here. It's, these plates look like they cost quite a bit. This food, pretty nice. Let me at least give you something to try to cover the costs. It's not only wrong, it's insulting, isn't it? It's insulting upon the work of Christ. I remember being fresh into college and fresh into college and all of a sudden you realize you're broke, right? You've got no money. So uh, we had a lot of great parents around the Wheaton area who would, uh, would bring us out, for the, the football players, football players' families and friends, bring us out for dinner on Friday nights and Saturday nights before games and after games. I remember um, uh, one particular set of parents brought us out for a nice dinner uh, Saturday night after the game and uh, they, you know, make the, the, the check comes, of course, they take it and they cover the meal for all of these college students, right? Poor college students. And I remember one person getting up kind of in front of everyone, we're sort of just talking, and uh, get up, they, they go to these wonderfully generous parents, and I think they went to hand them like a $20 bill or something like that. And uh, kind of every, everyone was sort of watching this unfold, kind of feeling uncomfortable. And uh, they have a little bit of an exchange. The, the dad says, no, it's okay. We want to do this for you. And the, the student was insistent, you know, very insistent, like, no, I, I don't like it when people pay for me. I want to try to pay uh, for myself. And uh, in sort of an instant, the father gets serious all of a sudden. He says, listen to me. If you don't put your money away, I'm never going to take you out for dinner again. And you've never seen a $20 bill disappear from sight quicker than in that moment, right? Father said, look, I'm giving to you as a gift. And you need to understand uh, the dynamic that's going on. Don't take away from me that which I've already determined to do for you. Something similar going on in the message of salvation through Christ. If we think in our minds that we add to it, or that in some sense we prop up the work of Christ or perfect it through our own good works, we are on a dangerous path, indeed. The message that we get is that our resume is nothing. It's, it's rubbish, as kind of strangely pops up in a lot of English translations here. The word rubbish, out of nowhere, you get this British word. And that's particularly because Paul here, as he's describing all that uh, he sort of looks to in his own life, if he wants to think like a Judaizer, he says it's all rubbish. He uses this very strong and graphic word. I mean, to do like refuse, stinky garbage, nasty, the nastiest thing. It's all garbage. But because we like to soften things, this British word rubbish pops up. Paul says this resume that you could uh, write for yourself is nothing. And remember, in Philippi, the, the resume, the social resume was a big deal. And we see here that the same thing can happen in our spiritual lives. The rat race of status in society, we, we obsess over that because hardwired into us is this sense that we can achieve something before other men and before God. So look at Paul's list of what he says uh, he has done and who he is. He says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. 
If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. First, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And I, he looks back and says, I, exactly when it was supposed to happen, that's when it happened for me. Some people can be confused and say, uh, in places like Philippians 3 and Galatians, why does Paul treat circumcision as such a negative thing here, the sacrament of regeneration, the sacrament of covenant inclusion in the Old Testament. What Paul is doing is saying that when circumcision is used for confidence in the flesh, that abuse of God's good gift is what is so dangerous. The same thing can be done with Christian baptism, can it? Someone can say, well, uh, I was born into a Christian family. I was baptized when I was a child. Therefore, it's all taken care of. I don't don't need to be summoned to to faith in Christ or to worry about any of that stuff because I'm good. I I look at my line. Look at my line and everything's good. No. Baptism summons us to faith in Christ. The same, it can be abused similarly by an adult convert. An adult convert can say, well, I went through this spiritual journey and I'm the one who arrived at this final conclusion that life is found in Jesus Christ and I walked up to those baptismal waters myself and I know that through that I achieved some merit before God. Both of those things are terrible errors that need to be avoided at all costs. Baptism and circumcision, as Paul says in Romans 4, are seals of the righteousness which is by faith. Seals of the righteousness which is by faith. Paul continues and says, look at all of these things. My family line, look at my zeal, look at my good works. If he ends it by saying, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Now Paul is not saying there, it's actually... It's a bit of a gloss by the NIV translation. Really what Paul says there, as to righteousness before the law, I was blameless. But Paul isn't saying there that he actually achieved righteousness before God. He's saying, if I step into the shoes of a Judaizer, they would look at me, uh, they would look at my resume, they would look at my achievements and my accomplishments, and they would say, that is exactly what we're talking about. The gospel of the Judaizing heresy would have found its apex in Paul. He is exactly the one that we would point to and say, there is where we see righteousness. He's saying, my resume was sparkling. It was spotless. But really, what Paul says is, it's all rubbish. It's garbage. It's nothing. We live in a world of addiction. Drug addiction is rampant. Technology addiction continues to hold more and more of us. Addiction to consumerism traps us in a world where we think that everything rides on our own choices. Right? We think of ourselves as consumers before anything. We sort of determine our destiny because of the consumerist choices that we make. But, and what we must understand is that in the flesh, in our sinful nature, we are addicted to putting confidence in the flesh. That is our spiritual addiction. Self-justification, showing our own worth before God, whether it is in biblical Christianity or whether it's people out in the world with sort of this new age resurgence in spirituality. We are addicted to self-justification. Chinese Reformed pastor Wang Yi 
says that self-justification is a blasphemy and it's more detestable to God than any specific violation of the law because it goes directly against why God has given the law. Why has he given the law? To stop our mouths. To shut us up before him so that we might find our righteousness in Christ alone. It was given to show our need for a savior. And so Pastor Yi goes on to say this. The law reveals our addiction. We are addicted to declaring ourselves righteous, addicted to moral self-reliance, addicted to distinguishing ourselves by being good people. Moralism makes us addicted to our own righteousness, and only the gospel can cut off that addiction. This is not to deny the goodness of the law or of ethics, but rather to save the goodness of the law back from our impure, sinful nature and shameful self-evaluation. It forbids us from using our own name to take away any merit that can only be attributed to Jesus. And that's what the gospel must do. As we look at the message we are preaching, as we look at the message in which we are believing, we ask ourselves, is it giving all glory to Christ and Christ alone? And we pledge fierce allegiance to that. And we understand that errors can creep in and capitalize on the ways in which we are wired. The gospel is our 28-day rehab program, although for many people it goes much longer than 28 days. The gospel is our addiction recovery. And so Paul teaches us here in the first parts of this passage to live according to the principle of grace. That's what we're called to do. We're hardwired to live according to the principle of confidence in the flesh. And he says, through the gospel, you must live according to the principle of grace. Three things, then, as we close. To live according to the principle of grace means that finding Christ and gaining Christ is something that happens without human working and human striving. Being found in Christ, Paul says, it happens in the spirit-filled life in Christ by faith. His whole resume was rubbish. It can't be achieved through the flesh or through confidence in the flesh. That is gospel living. Living according to the principle of grace, secondly, is that it teaches us that gaining Christ and knowing Christ is the greatest treasure that we could ever know in this life. Gaining Christ. It's worth giving up all to gain Christ. To have Christ and to lose all is to live a king's life, Samuel Rutherford. To have Christ and to lose all is to live the life of a king. It's the greatest thing. And so Paul sets us up for knowing the level of sacrifice we ought to be ready to make in order to gain Christ, to throw it all away, to trust in our Savior and be found in Him. The third thing, Living according to the principle of grace is uh, that we reject all of our confidence in the flesh and live according to the power of the gospel and live with this in mind, that grace reigns. Grace reigns in my life. Listen to this quote about this very thing. Grace reigns demonstrates the power of the gospel itself or sorry, the promise of the gospel itself, the power of the gospel, 
and the primary principle of the Christian life. For Christians, grace becomes the motivation for life and the governing principle. For example, Paul urges Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. A person can only be strengthened by grace. Without grace, one can only be hardened. And so we glory in Christ Jesus. And we let grace reign to recognize the one who gives grace is our king. And we as the ones who receive grace are his servants, his beggars. So ask yourself, brothers and sisters, Ask yourselves, is your confidence in Christ alone? Is your confidence in Christ alone? Are you guarding your life and your profession in faithfulness to the gospel of Christ? Paul says at the beginning of our passage, I'm going to tell you these things as a safeguard for you. Do you make sure that you are understanding and knowing that the gospel is being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then are you living under the reign of grace? Your life lived before God, is it something where you're still introducing these notions of living according to the the principle of confidence in the flesh, or is the joy that you have in Christ rooted in the principle of grace. And as you serve your God, do you find freedom to serve Him according to grace? And do you live according to that principle? This is what we are confronted with in the first part of this passage. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And everything is a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, because of his glory, I'm ready to lose all things. I'm ready to give it up, ready to give all of it up, so that I might be found in him. And the message that I believe gives all glory to him, and it glorifies and exalts him alone. Live this way according to the principle of grace, the grace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help and your spirit and your grace to empower us to remain faithful to the message that we have received and to to guard this message which is for the salvation of the world, the message of salvation by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. We thank you for him who is our perfect Savior. May your truth uh, sink into hearts and may we be assured to know for the thousandth time, for the first time, that we have no boast before you save for Jesus Christ. And may our confidence be in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen. We sing number 521.